Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca believes parents do not have confidence in Premier Doug Ford's back-to-school plan. Del Duca says if made Premier, he would make education his top priority. But by 2022, it's expected COVID would be behind us as vaccines are distributed through the course of next year. So what's his plan to get the economy back on track? And is now even the time to talk about that? Del Duca believes the time to set aside partisan politics in the COVID fight has passed, and the tipping point was Ford's lack of focus on a safe return to the classroom. The first thing that's really important to acknowledge is that back in early March, when the pandemic really first started to disrupt everything here in Ontario, across Canada and beyond, that governments at all levels, including our provincial government here in Ontario, were scrambling to deal with that kind of disruption. And I think when you look back at public statements that I made in those earliest days and weeks and even months, a lot of it was designed to try to be collaborative and constructive and give some what I thought would be helpful advice to Doug Ford and to his government. I think what was probably um, most troubling for me in those earliest days was how slow uh, Doug Ford and his team moved with respect to certain things. So for example, when you compare Ontario's response in long-term care homes to that which took place in British Columbia, uh, the fact that in those earliest weeks and months, our testing ramped up so slowly, uh, we were only doing, you know, five, six, 7,000 tests a day when parts of the world were, were doing quite a bit more in those earliest days. I have the benefit of having served in government uh, have been at the cabinet table and senior portfolios over the course of four years. I think having that experience and being understanding of how the machinery of government works would have been really helpful. Um, despite best efforts, if I can be uh, gracious that way, uh, not too many people around the cabinet table for Doug Ford had that kind of experience. And so I think that was uh, one of the early risks that we all had to deal with. And we're still, I think, suffering a bit of a sort of halo negative halo effect in many ways th these many months later. There would be those who would argue, though, that this is not the time for partisan politics. We need to set that aside. Yeah, and again, that's why throughout March, April, May, even into June, I think that almost every one of my public statements was designed to be uh, on purpose because I felt that. Uh, rally together. Rally around the flag. We have nearly 15 million people who call our province home. They didn't want partisanship. They didn't want the over-the-top attacks that we're sadly used to in politics. They wanted us to work together. So in those first few weeks and months, I think it was close to two dozen recommendations that I provided publicly to Doug Ford and his government about how to improve the situation. I would tell you, for me, the turning point was the government's lack of a plan for the safe reopening of Ontario's public schools. Um, you know, my wife and I are raising two daughters, our older daughter is in grade eight this year, our younger daughter is in grade four. And I felt throughout the balance of June and July and certainly into August that there just wasn't a serious effort made by Doug Ford or his team to invest the amount that was needed to drive class sizes down to keep the kids safe. And so for me, that was kind of the turning point between being exclusively collaborative and constructive and trying to hold Doug Ford to account. The positivity rate in schools in, in Ontario, in some particular schools, is about 4%. And the argument right now is that it's not the schools that are the super spreaders responsible for where we are today with the almost 2,000 cases per day. Um, it's, it's the community where we're seeing positivity rates of 16%. Well, you know, I've heard those stats about schools, um, but I, you know, I have to tell you, when you look at isolated areas from what we've seen so far, uh, since the government started testing, 
uh, asymptomatic kids. So in Thorncliffe Park and a part of Toronto in a, in a priority neighborhood, we saw that there were, I believe, 19 or 20 kids in that school who tested positive just a few days ago. Uh, that school has since shut down. We, you know, we've started to see similar numbers uh, in other parts of uh, the GTA and beyond. I think that, um, you know, to me, that's troubling. The other thing I have to say about the safe reopening of schools was that for sure, it was really important to me and I think most parents across this province that we protected the safety and health of our kids at all costs. But it was just as important for moms and dads to have peace of mind, knowing that their kids would be safe so that they could go back to work, get back into the economy, do what they needed to do to earn a living to support themselves. Uh, and I think that the reason we saw so many parents choose to keep their kids at home back in September was because they didn't have confidence in Doug Ford's plan. And in some school boards, we're talking about 20, 25, 30% of families who chose to keep their kids at home. And to me, that was a, a very clear signal that those families did not have confidence in Doug Ford's plan. And that was bad news, still is bad news for our system and for our economy. I don't know if this argument just adds fuel to that fire or if it mitigates it, because my daughter is in a private school and she had come from the Toronto District School Board. And the communication difference between what we got at the tail end of grade eight for her from the TDSB versus the communication we got from a school that charges an obscene amount of money every year was remarkable. How much could this be Doug Ford's fault when we're dealing with school boards specifically? And that contrast is quite remarkable. You hit the nail kind of on the head. The, the school that the private school where your, I think you said daughter goes, um, I'm sure it's relatively small. It's one school, it's one administration. And I say relatively small, it's probably at the most a dozens or small hundreds of kids, if I can put it that way. Um, in our publicly funded system across Ontario, there are 2 million school kids, 2 million. And there are about 150, 160,000 frontline educators, teachers and education assistants who work in those schools. I think that when you consider that Doug Ford and his team did not really start planning for the safe reopening of schools until well into the summer months, which to me, I just, it defies logic because even though in those earliest days everybody was scrambling, when our kids were kept out for the extra week of March break, when this all started, everybody in Ontario, including Doug Ford, knew that at some point in the future, schools would have to reopen. And the fact that he, his education minister, and his entire team waited months before they started their planning, uh, I've had the chance to meet with teacher representatives, school board representatives in virtually every corner of Ontario, and their message has been the same. They received no communications. They didn't have a clear understanding of how this was going to unfold. They didn't have adequate funding to deal with even the most basic things early on, like better ventilation in public schools. Uh, certainly no desire to keep class sizes down at 15, which is what I called for. When you take all of that into account, it's completely understandable, but also regrettable that parents uh, had uh, such confusion and such anxiety because there was no clear leadership coming from the very top. And that, to me, that's Doug Ford. The buck stops with him. What is the point at which we pivot from focusing on a health crisis to focusing on an economic crisis? Well, look, I, this is a public health crisis. And you know that, that, that to me is the most profoundly important thing that we have to remember at all times. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep an eye on what's happening in our economy, that we shouldn't have a plan ready for the recovery, in, in particular to help those who've been hit the hardest during this pandemic, women. Uh, we know that people of color, uh, other racialized, marginalized communities have been really battered very badly throughout this pandemic. Uh, and so it's really important for us to keep one eye on that. But the bottom line is, if we don't deal with the pandemic, if we don't successfully grapple with the second wave and restore people's confidence in on the public health side, get the numbers under control and provide clear, consistent messaging so there is no confusion about how we're dealing with this, it's going to be virtually impossible to have a successful recovery on the economic side. It's one of the reasons that I had urged Doug Ford prior to him moving certain regions, like my home region of York region, into a modified stage two or doing the lockdowns in Toronto and Peel the second time around, it was one of the reasons that I urged him to move more quickly than he did and more decisively, because I feel that if he had done that, if he'd started that work a little bit earlier, uh, we would be in much better shape to, uh, today and the numbers would be lower than they are. And I think people would have more confidence. So, you know, I think in government, you have to know how to chew and, uh, you know, chew gum and walk at the same time as the saying goes. So there's no doubt that we have to keep an eye on what's happening on the economy. But if we don't deal with COVID first and do it in a decisive and successful way, we won't we won't be able to have the freedom associated with making sure our economy recovers. Dr. Vincent Lamon, epidemiologist, wrote in the Globe and Mail an op-ed piece where he argued back in September that we need to have a coordinated, organized shutdown. Tell people well in advance it's coming. We can deal with that from an economic perspective. It is the unexpected, out-of-nowhere shutdowns that create the big problem. Are you a proponent of the idea of saying from this date to this date, just shut the whole province down? I favored from the very beginning using the, using the regional approach. I think that was that was reasonable on the part of the government. In fact, it was something that, again, I talked about before the government moved in that direction. We we know that in Toronto, Peel, at one point in Ottawa, in my home region of York region today, uh, we see the numbers being a little bit more troubling, if I can put it that way, than we do in other parts of the province. I'm not entirely convinced that we uh, needed to go into a province-wide across-the-board second lockdown. In fact. I wanted to avoid that at all costs, and I still do. But I, but I do agree 100% that the lack of decisiveness, the lack of boldness, and the lack of clarity on the part of Doug Ford in terms of what the message is and what the plan is has been really, really tough on the people of this province. I think it's one of the reasons uh, that we are all facing such pandemic fatigue. It's one of the reasons that people really aren't necessarily across the board playing by the rules because the rules keep changing and they don't really understand and there's no real clarity. So that I think has been a problem throughout the fall. I also think that, you know, you have to remember over the summer months when the case counts started to drop, which was great, and we all felt relieved that we were maybe out of the woods, even though public health leaders and even though Doug Ford himself said in July that there would be a second wave of this pandemic, there wasn't, to me anyway, enough planning and preparation done in those quieter months when we had a chance to deal with where we are now. In fact, Doug Ford took the opposite approach. Instead of being with his command table on a regular basis and figuring out a real plan for the second wave, he decided to go on a tour across Ontario to declare premature victory. And to me, that, that just made no sense. So again, um, I recognize we should be working together and I wanna work together, but I have a responsibility to call Doug Ford out for his incompetence. And I think in this regard, He's, he's demonstrated it pretty clearly. If the majority of cases and the majority of deaths in Ontario are within the long-term care system, what's the biggest long-term takeaway about improving the system? 
Well, I think the biggest long-term sort of takeaway from the disastrous and tragic circumstances that we've seen in long-term care is that for way too long, governments at multiple levels and of different partisan stripes, including liberals, have allowed the question of how Ontarians age, um, that we've allowed that to sort of descend into the shadows and be a conversation that takes place on the margins. And it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. And to me, that's horrible. I was blessed in my life to be close to all four of my grandparents growing up. I had all four of them into adulthood. And in fact, my, my last surviving grandparent lived until she was, my dad's mom lived until she was almost 97 and she attended my wedding. And so very close to all four of my grandparents. And my parents are now getting a little bit older, like millions of other Ontarians. And it just, to me, is completely heartbreaking that we've all allowed this situation to unfold. So I, I think for sure we have a responsibility to do more in long-term care. I think there were things that occurred in the sector prior to Doug Ford becoming premier that were problematic. I think we did some things that were reasonably good in long-term care as liberals, but we clearly didn't get the job done effectively enough. And I think Doug Ford made a bad situation dramatically worse uh, when he cut the number of inspections that were taking place, when he moved more slowly during the pandemic than his uh, counterparts in British Columbia did to shut the homes down and make sure that personal support workers, for example, were not moving from one home to another and inadvertently spreading the virus. Uh, so there's a series of things that I believe Doug Ford's done to make it worse during the pandemic. But on the other side of this, I think when we look at long-term care, we have to do a couple of things. One is we have to make sure that the hours of care and the standard of care are improved and not in four years or five years, but in the short term. I think we need to provide our personal support workers, the women and men, and frankly, mostly women on the front lines in those homes with a permanent pay increase so they have a living wage. I think we have to actually apply a new and improved training standard for personal support workers with their buy-in and support uh, so that that standard across the board, that standard of care across the board can be improved and be stronger. I think we have to do all of that. But at the same time, we have to have the much bigger conversation about how Ontarians can retire and age with dignity across the board. So long-term care needs a real fix, but we also look, have to look at how we keep seniors in their own homes, how we can have community-based home care that makes sense for the people of Ontario. I'll just finish off by saying, in all of my travels and all of my time, as a politician, I've never met a senior who's told me that their first choice is to go into a long-term care home. Their first choice is to really stay at home, be amongst their friends and family, be safe, have income sufficiency, and have dignity. And I think we have to be able to, again, do all of those things at the same time. And I believe we can. We just can't allow this to once again descend into the shadows and on the fringes. We have to be serious about it this time. The majority of those long-term care cases, though, have taken place in privately run facilities. How do we put people over profit in what is clearly a two-tiered system? Yeah, so again, I think that comes down to the standards of care. I think it comes down to a pretty direct conversation with the sector. I think we have to take a look at when we choose to expand in long-term care because we do need more beds, whether we're going to permit more private licenses for additional private uh, for additional long-term care beds. I think everything should be on the table. I don't think, however, if we don't fix the standards of care, the pay that personal support workers receive, for example, I don't think we're going to fix this by simply saying we're going to get rid of private long-term care. This is a much bigger conversation that we need to have, and I don't think we can afford to sort of deal with this from a sloganeering uh, platitude kind of perspective. I think we need real work on this, and I do also believe everything should be on the table. 
The next Ontario provincial election is expected just as we come out on the other side of COVID-19, or at least that's what we're hoping. If elected premier, what would be your top priority upon entering office? So my number one priority is going to be publicly funded education. It is to me at the center of everything that we need to do as a province. I think it's one of the two most profoundly important responsibilities a premier of this province needs to have at all times. And so I mean that I mean that across the entire spectrum. So I say publicly funded education. I mean, you know, preschool and childcare. I'm talking about elementary, secondary, post-secondary. I'm talking about lifelong learning because we know that the economy is shifting and there's tons of disruption that we saw prior to the pandemic, which I think is only going to accelerate afterwards. And so to me, the centerpiece of everything that I will do if I receive the honor of governing this province as premier will center around publicly funded education, its excellence, its resilience, its affordability, and its accessibility. What about the Ontario basic income pilot? So the commitment I made when I was running for leadership, uh, the leadership of the Ontario Liberal Party was that I would restart the basic income pilot that we had launched when we were last in power. That would be the basic income pilot that Doug Ford had promised he would let finish and then decided to recklessly cut prematurely. And how sad is it that he chose to do that? Because imagine that we would have by now had the data, the research and the analysis that that pilot would have provided to decision makers, not just here provincially, but perhaps nationally and internationally. So I have committed to restart that basic income pilot and I would also take that up as a priority. Can we afford it coming out of COVID-19? I think we can afford the basic income pilot. What I would like to see is that work be completed, that research be completed, the analysis be completed, so we can have a real sense of how much the, per- the potential broader deployment would cost, what kind of benefit it would provide, so we can have a real conversation. And again, the sad part is that we could have had that conversation right now if Doug Ford had simply followed through on his commitment and let the original pilot that we launched finish its work then we'd have all the data that we would need to make an informed decision. Sadly, we don't, but I am quite prepared, and I've announced this already, to restart the pilot so we have the data that we need to make any other decisions beyond that. Does Ontario have a spending problem, a low growth problem? If Ontario has a revenue problem, what would you do to keep deficits under control? Well, look, I think, again, in the midst of an unprecedented pandemic, you know, I don't, I don't think this is the time for austerity. I don't think this is the time for the kind of reckless cuts that we saw delivered by Doug Ford in his first 16 or 17 months in office. I'm not a big believer in austerity at the best of times, and these have not been the best of times. I do believe it's important for Ontario's government to keep an eye on the public finances and the public purse. I think the people of this province rightfully expect a government to not be frivolous or misspend their hard-earned tax dollars. But I also know that if we're going to come out on the other side of this pandemic, and truly rebuild our economy from the bottom up, from the grassroots up, we need to make sure that some fundamentally important things have the proper resources. I talked already about the importance of publicly funded education throughout one's life, uh, including components around childcare. Uh, I believe universal public health care is the other um, primary pillar that is uh, at at the heart of the responsibility of a premier. We've already touched upon long-term care. So I think if we get all of those pieces and more right, we can actually help spur the kind of economic growth that we do need to see in this province so that we can eventually have a responsible path to return to balance. But right now, we need to get through the rest of COVID. We need to make sure we have a government in place that's investing in the right ways and investing in its people uh, so that we can get to where we need to go. Explain to me what you mean by you don't believe in austerity in the best of times, because isn't the best of times the time for austerity, the save for a rainy day time when things are good? 
Well, listen, I mean, guess I guess that all depends on how you define austerity. And I, you know, I'm, I'm talking about the kind of, again, reckless cuts that we saw in the first 16, 17 months where Doug Ford was in power. So just one example, the kind of cut that we saw to public health in those earliest months, the kind of cuts that I think have uh, reaped a bad kind of dividend for the people of Ontario as we've been struggling through a public health crisis. Uh, here's another one for you. And I say this as somebody who drives an electric vehicle. Uh, on the one hand, Doug Ford cut the subsidies that the pr province of Ontario used to provide to encourage consumers to switch to zero emission vehicles. A few months later, he was quite happy to show up in Oakville, Ontario and stand alongside the federal government when Ford Motor Company announced that they'd be expanding or continuing to build at that assembly plant, but they'd be building electric vehicles and Doug Ford heralded that announcement. To me, that was penny wise and pound foolish and it makes no sense. And that's just one example of the kind of reckless cutting that I don't think makes any sense going forward. Again, I wanna stress, I do believe the people of Ontario demand of government that their tax dollars, which they work hard, they work hard to earn, are invested wisely. But I also know that when you send your kids off to school in the morning, you're not worried about the size of the deficit. You want to make sure that they're getting the kind of world-class education that they need and that they're safe and that their educators are safe. If you or a loved one happens to get ill, God forbid, when you're sitting in the room with your doctor or your nurse practitioner and you're waiting for them to tell you how you're going to get better, I don't think your priority in that moment is what's the size of the deficit today? You just actually want to get better. And the list goes on from there. So to me, it is about balance. It's about responsibility, but it's also making sure that we build fairness, justice, and economic dignity into the system that we are going to build together on the other side of this pandemic. The pandemic has been described, understandably, as a crisis, um, not dissimilar to what we had to deal with in the Second World War. And we threw a lot of money uh, out the door during the Second World War. And post-Second World War, we grew our way out of that deficit. Can we accomplish that again this time? And how, if we can? That's a very, very important question. I don't know that anybody here in this country, this province, or frankly, in, in most parts of the world has an ironclad answer to that. I do think if we are going to successfully grow our economy, that again, it comes back to how well-trained is our workforce? How, uh, how are we skilling up throughout the course of one's life in the economy? Uh, how much of an emphasis and a priority are we making of publicly funded education uh, to me? And, you know, I, I served for a few months at the tail end or the last few months of our last time in office. I was the economic development and growth minister. And when you look at all of the, let's call them conventional economic indicators, and you saw how strong in that moment Ontario's economy was, not perfect, but certainly strong, relatively low unemployment, economic growth that was outpacing the rest of Canada, U.S. and the Western and Western Europe, and a bunch of other, you know, first or second uh, across North America for foreign direct investment, and a series of other indicators that you would look at. Uh, there was no real magic in all of that. That was 15 consecutive years of, frankly, investing in the workforce and building up those skills and and making our education system world class. And so that's why I think if we are going to pursue any kind of agenda on the other side of this pandemic that is focused as it should be on growth, it does need to start with publicly funded education, which is why that remains my priority. Uh, of the direct foreign investment demand that we have, we want that money from abroad to come in and help grow this province. Toronto, however, consistently ranked as one of the most expensive cities in the world to live in. What would your government do to ensure housing affordability for the residents of not just Toronto, but Ontario? 
it, listen, it's an, it's an issue. If you asked me five or six years ago, it was largely centered in the GTA. That issue has now migrated to other parts. It's the GHTA now. It really is. Like, and I've heard about that from people in London and Kitchener, Waterloo and Ottawa and Windsor and elsewhere. And so I think, you know, what I've said on this so far, and let's recognize for a second that we've, we are just about to begin our platform and policy development process as a political party. So for sure, I will have more to say about this in the months ahead. But what I've set up until now is as a first kind of commandment, uh, the government of Ontario cannot do any more harm. And I, you know, I've said this, uh, I've said this on a number of occasions. I certainly said it during uh, my journey to become the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. I think we, I think we have to look at, and I've called for the benchmarking of our approvals processes across the GTHA and beyond as it relates taking um, housing stock, housing product from concept all the way to market. Uh, I think we're too slow in how we do that. Um, that's not just a question of red tape. I think over many, many years, we've built up processes that are very strong and perhaps are world renowned, but especially in areas that are close to higher order transit, it's still taken four, six, eight, ten years uh, in some cases to go from concept to market when we know there's a massive demand for people who want all, all forms of housing availability, whether that's condos or towns or stacked towns or single detached houses, whatever it happens to be. And so I think we should start by benchmarking how we go through the approvals process here in Ontario versus what we see in other similar places around the world to see if there aren't improvements without sacrificing the kind of protections that we do need for consumers and for the environment. Uh, because I think we do have, as, that, as it relates to that issue, uh, a bit of a supply problem. Stephen Del Duca is the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. Still to come from a physically distant C.D. Howe Institute, the outlook for Quebec and Canada's recovery, that's December 15th. And January 13th, COVID-19 and healthcare's digital revolution. On the 26th, Lori Pushorf, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Alberta's Energy Regulator. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.